Hello and thank you for joining Haaretz Weekly, with you in studio Amir Tibon. On today's episode, one of Israel's top Iran experts takes us on a journey inside the Islamic Republic. What is influencing the country's decision-makers? How is Iranian society changing? And what are the odds that a nuclear deal will be struck, or else that Israel will have to strike Iran's nuclear sites? All of that and more up next. Our guest today is Raz Tzimp, one of Israel's premier Iran experts. He's a researcher at the Alliance Center for Iranian Studies at Tel Aviv University and at the Israeli Institute for National Security Studies. Hello, Raz. Hi, how are you doing? Great to have you here and also author of the recently published, only in Hebrew for now, yes. uh, Iran from Within, State and Society in the Islamic Republic, a very intriguing headline for a new book. Congratulations. Thank you very much. Do you believe that the Iranians are really interested right now in going back to an agreement? Well, That's the, the million dollar yeah, question, right? right? Uh, exa- m- exactly. Many, many millions of dollars. Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that Iran wants to go back to the JCPOA, and I think that even this uh, current uh, government in Iran, the, the more hardline government of uh, President Raisi, wants to go back to, to, to the JCPOA, mainly of, of one, one big reason, which is uh, stability. I mean, it's not just uh, Biden who wants to bring back the nuclear issue back into the box. It's also Khamenei. I mean, uh, they realize that uh, it's, it will be very difficult, if not impossible, to to deal with the Iranian economic uh, problems without uh, sanctions uh, relief, it, it won't be enough. I mean, uh, the Iranian economy suffers from so many problems, uh, structural problems, uh, corruption and mis- mismanagement and the lack of transparency that even if tomorrow morning the, the sanctions are, are removed, it will still be very difficult to address the Iranian economic uh, problems. But still, if, if, if you look at uh, the situation right now, and uh, we all remember the protests uh, in Iran over the last few years, including last summer over the shortage of, of water and electricity, it's very clear that Iran wants uh, more stability, both economic and social. But, and that's a very important but, uh, Iran certainly is not in a rush to go back to the JCPOA. I think that in a way, the the current Iranian administration and the current Iranian uh, regime, mainly mainly Khamenei, the supreme leader, and, and Raisi, uh, perhaps they in in a way, in a way fell in love with this concept of a resistance economy or resilient economy, which was quite su- successful in a way that Iran was not on the verge of economic collapse. They they certainly managed to somehow adapt the economy to the sanctions. Uh, and especially now with the uh, oil prices and the, the, the amount of uh, oil being uh, exported, to, especially to China, they can certainly survive the sanctions. But I think that overall they want to go back to the deal. The question is uh, how to go back to a deal in which they will be able to explain both to the domestic population inside Iran and outside that, first of all, they, they managed to get a better deal than the previous government of uh, President Rouhani was able to achieve. And then they, they, that they managed to somehow uh, pressure the United States up to a point where the United States is the one who has to compromise. So if you listen, for example, to the recent speech of Khamenei only a few days ago, saying that we are facing uh, a new world order uh, moving from a uh, monopolar world to a multipolar world. It certainly uh, reinforces uh, the, the assessment in Iran that they can do uh, without the JCPOA uh, and that the U.S. needs to, to go back to the JCPOA uh, more than the Iran uh, needs to go there. Let's talk a bit about Khamenei, who you mentioned. Is he the real decision maker in Tehran? He's certainly the real decision maker in, in Iran, but we have to remember that Iran... 
uh, is a very com complex state. So I, I would say that most decisions when it comes to strategic decisions related to foreign policy and even domestic policy are decided for and foremost by the Supreme National Security Council. And at the Supreme National Security Council, you, you can somehow see different approaches towards uh, different issues. Uh, I have to say that since the recent elections in Iran, when uh, President Raisi was elected, the SNSC, the Supreme National Security Council, seems to be more uh, homogenic. Uh, but still, there are certainly different approaches, for example, between the more I wouldn't say moderate, but uh, the more pragmatic centrist elements within the SNC and the more uh, hardline uh, conservatives sitting there. But eventually it has to get the approval of the Supreme Leader. So, of course, the Supreme Leader doesn't make decisions over every issue. But the strategy is certainly decided by the SNC and approved by or uh, not approved by, by the Supreme Leader. Now, Supreme Leader is an appointment for life. Right? Uh, yeah, basically, un unless, of course, he's uh, sick or he's not uh, incapable of, uh, of performing his uh, duties. Khamenei today is how old? Well, he was born in 39, so he has to be 80, uh, I'm not good at math, uh, 80, 83. In the early yeah, 80s. 80, 83. Do you think he's still sharp enough to make these kinds of decisions for Iran today? Is he <laughs> really still the one calling the shots? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, uh, first of all, the Shia clerics have the tendency to live longer. Uh, and I have to what's say, the secret there uh, well you should ask them <laughs> but uh, but but I think that look there is some reports about his health conditions and uh, a few years ago uh, there were reports that he was hospitalized and then everyone was speaking that he has only uh, a limited time to leave but I have to say that when I watch him uh, giving speeches for hours he seems okay to me certainly uh, uh, he's not as capable as he was 20 years ago Uh, but I think that the political system in Iran is, is quite stable right now with, with his leadership. And what informs his thinking? Well, uh, I think that uh, basically when you follow Iranian policy and strategy ever since the, the Islamic Revolution, it's always been a combination of, of two main things. Uh, one is the ideology, you could say the religious ideals of the revolution. So, uh, uh, for example, his uh, position towards the United States or towards Israel is still very much uh, impacted by, by his revolutionary ideals about the great Satan and the little Satan uh, named Israel. Uh, and then, for example, when the Arab revolutions uh, happened a, a decade ago, he was referring to them as the Bidariya Islami, as, as the Iranian uh, awakening. But but it's never just about uh, ideology. It's always about he's very pragmatic uh, and he, he certainly thinks about the national interests of, of Iran and certainly about the stability of the regime. So take, for example, his position towards the United States. I remember back in 1997 when former President uh, Mohammad Khatami was elected and he was certainly a more pragmatic, more, more reformist, more moderate. And then he gave an interview uh, before the New Year, a very uh, famous interview to the CNN. Christian Arpoi was the first president after the revolution to give such an interview. And he was speaking about the need to open a, a dialogue between the Iranians and, and the Americans. And, and a few days afterwards, Khamenei said, no, no, we will not have dialogue with the United States. And then 20 years afterwards, uh, you, you find the Iranian government uh, negotiating with, uh, with Mr. Kerry and uh, with the Americans. So he certainly wants to and, and is willing to adapt his revolutionary ideals. Having said that, even his perceptions about what's going on today is certainly different. I mean, uh, one of the lessons uh, Iran has taken from the recent war in Ukraine 
uh, which is not a new one, but but it certainly uh, reinforced the perceptions in Iran, is that the U.S. is in decline, that uh, the U.S. has lost its uh, hegemonic power. And therefore, when, when you see, for example, uh, over the last few years, Iran's to the east, uh, having more uh, more cooperation with Russia, with China, that's a part of, of his perception that Iran should should not look anymore towards the west, as perhaps uh, President Rouhani wanted to somehow balance the eastern uh, influence with a more western one, but certainly to look to the right part of the history, which is not siding with the liberal democracies, but with the other parts of the, of, of the world. We've heard a lot in recent years about the young generation in Iran being more open to the world, adopting more Western lifestyles, values, culture. How concerned is the older leadership, the people of Khamenei's generation, about this phenomenon? First of all, they're aware of this, uh, which is the first thing to remember. Uh, I remember one of the hardline uh, clerics in Iran, the Friday prayer uh, preacher of Mashhad, Alamul Hoda, acknowledging the fact that the young generation in Iran tends to watch TV and party rather than uh, listen to the clerics and uh, attend the, the mosque. So th- they know about that. They're certainly concerned with that. I mean, uh, the whole perception of the, the current Iranian regime is, uh, is they're concerned with the so-called uh, Nufud, the influence of the West, which is not just a political and economic influence, but also a cultural one. And uh, look, for example, at the, at the efforts made by, by Iran today to limit even further the access to social media. They also uh, aware of the fact that they can't expect the younger generation today in Iran to act at the same uh, way they they acted uh, 30 or 40 years ago. Uh, so uh, even those who expected, for example, uh, President Raisi to take a much more conservative or hardline position towards uh, the enforcement of uh, Islamic codress or uh, social media or women, you can say that even Raisi, who is certainly a hardliner and a conservative cleric, knows that, that he should not push too much towards uh, an enforcement of, of the Islamic codress. He even uh, removed some of the obstacles imposed on the two leaders of the reformist camp uh, recently because he, he's, he's certainly aware of this uh, a gradual gap between the Iranian population and, and the regime. But I have to say that there is there is still difference between the way President Rouhani, for example, uh, wanted to manage this problem by allowing more freedom, more, uh, more tolerance towards uh, this issue, and the more conservative view saying, well, we, we should not open the door for that because if, if we allow them to, to go further, we might find ourselves in the same situation where the USSR found, found itself in the... Uh, and that would uh, certainly uh, could result in uh, uh, in the fall of the in the fall of the regimes. Yeah. Exactly. How many years have you been following Iran's politics and foreign policy? At least for the last twenty years. I mean, both when I was uh, in the military, where I dealt with Iran, and then when I uh, retired uh, seven years ago and and joined um, the academic world. So approximately twenty years. What? It turned you into an Iranologist, if, <laughs> if we can use the term? Actually, it was quite uh, coincidental because I studied before going to the army. I was in the so-called academic reserve. So I, I studied my first degree in Jerusalem. And then I, I, I wanted to focus on Middle Eastern studies and, and ask to, to learn a second Middle Eastern language and not just Arabic, which was, of course, mandatory. And uh, everyone was saying you should study Persian because it's much much easier than Turkish because it, it has at least a common uh, vocabulary. 
So with I, the Arabic. With Arabic, exactly. And then I started uh, learning Persian. As, and as what happened to me is, happens to many others. I just fell in love with the Iranian culture and the Iranian history. It's, it's so different. What caused that uh, love to spark in you? I think that, uh, and I don't want to sound as an Iranian nationalist, but, uh, but, but, but the fact that Iran is, is, is not just history, is not just culture, it's a civilization. One could say that about Egypt as well, perhaps. But, uh, but it, it really has uh, uh, 3,000 3, years of, of history of civilization, and they're very proud of that. So it's, it's very easy to, uh, to look to Iran and see this uh, rich culture and rich civilization and rich history. How much does that ancient history impact things that are happening in the country today, in your view? Certainly it has an impact. Both, let me just give you one, one or two examples. If you remember the, the speech made by President Trump in 2017 or 18, when he announced that he's going to, to withdraw from the JCPOA, and everyone is in Iran uh, was speaking about his speech, not because of the issue of sanctions or because of the issue of, of nuclear issue, but, but because he, he referred to the Gulf as the Arabian Gulf rather than the Persian Gulf. So they, they have this pride so that, that's one, one angle of, of that. But, but look, for example, at what has been going on in Iran over the last few years, where you see every year thousands of Iranians going to commemorate the, uh, the entrance of Cyrus the Great to uh, Babylonian. And they really have this respect to the ancient history of Iran. Even a president like Ahmadinejad, who was considered in the West as a fundamentalist or a Shia extremist, even he, uh, if you remember when the British Museum loaned Iran the Cyrus uh, Cylinder, and he was having this uh, huge event in, in Tehran and commemorated Cyrus the Great. So you, you can certainly see that the Iranian uh, identity is not just Islamic, it's not just Shia, it's also uh, Iranian, Persian, Islamic, Shia, it's, it's all together and it certainly has its impact today, uh, even 43 years after the, after the Islamic revolution. In those uh, two decades or more that you have been following the country, what do you think has been the biggest change in Iran? could perhaps say that the, 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 certainly the, the gap between the ordinary population and the young generation and, and the Islamic Republic and the Islamic regime has, has, uh, has grown. But I would say perhaps two other issues. One is that the political elite has become much narrowed. I mean, uh, 20 years ago, we could certainly discuss the debate between reformists or moderates and the conservatives or hardliners. What has happened, especially during the last two decades, is that uh, today uh, the reformists are no longer part of the decision making in, in Iran. And uh, most of the de debates are taking place be between different parts of the so-called conservative faction, which is certainly not a good thing. And it certainly had an impact on the legitimacy of the regime. And perhaps the second issue is that I, I, I tend to think that today the level of frustration in Iran has, has become even stronger, uh, not just because of this political process, but also, of course, the economic the economic uh, crisis, uh, the impact of the sanctions, the impact of Trump's decision to leave the deal, and uh, the actually the collapse of the JCPOA. You, we all remember the celebrations taking place in, in Iran after the JCPOA was signed, because there was really hope, hope after the JCPOA was signed, a hope after Rouhani was elected in 2013. And today, I think one of the perhaps uh, worst thing in Iran is that there, there is no hope. And you can see, for example, the level of emigration from Iran. It's, it's not necessarily that Iran is going to the streets 
rights to protest against the regime. That happens as well. But you can also see this level of uh, depression, the, the level of uh, distrust, uh, the fact that when you ask many Iranians to describe the situation in Iran, they say Iran harabe, Iran, Iran is ruined. There is no hope for the future. And, and I think that that's perhaps one of the main characteristics of today of the, of, of the Iranian society. And when you look at the decision makers here in Israel during those two decades, what do you think they have learned about Iran? What do they still get wrong? Well, on the one hand, perhaps they did realize that Iran is more complex than it uh, seems. And, uh, and even uh, Benjamin Netanyahu made this distinction between the Iranian people and the Iranian regime. He used to put out these videos in Persian, I remember, on his YouTube or Facebook. I don't know if that had any impact, but it was a, an interesting shtick, perhaps, that uh, corresponds with what you're saying here. Yeah, but, but, but on the other hand, you could say that still uh, there is much lack of understanding of what's going on in Iran and that uh, society is not monolithic as, as well. I mean... Uh, When you look at the Iranian society, there are certainly discussions over there and the divisions over there and not then the fact that many Iranians don't like the regime doesn't mean that tomorrow morning they are going to go to the streets and try to change the regime. And I think that there is sometimes um, overestimation of the power of, of uh, not, not of the people, but but of the uh, so-called protest movement. And I'm not really sure that there is a protest movement. There, there, there have been certainly protests going on in Iran. But when when I see the, the weaknesses and the strength of both the regime and the protests movement, if there is a movement, I, I still believe that the Iranian regime is, is quite stable, I, I, I would say. One of the reasons for that is not just the fear of, among the population from going to the streets. Of course, that, that's one of the reasons. But because when you ask many Iranians, why don't you go to the streets in millions? One of the answers is that uh, the alternative might be worse. And when they follow the events, uh, not just of in Iran in the last 43 years, but, but mainly in the Arab world in the last decade, they, they certainly understand that uh, a revolution is something that you can start with, but you can never tell where it ends. There is this fear of, of getting a revolution and then perhaps we'll get something, something worse. And I, I think that this is something which is still uncomprehended in, in Israel. And of course, the Israeli strategy towards Iran, in my, in my view, lacked a real understanding of, of what, what the Iranian regime can and cannot deliver. For example, this, uh, this assumption that if you put Uh, more pressure on Iran, eventually they are going to capitulate. That never happened. And my view has always been that no matter how pressure you put on the Iranian regime, there are certain ideas which are considered by Iran as a vital national interest. For example, uh, the nuclear program, uh, the missiles program, and they're just not going to give it up. Uh, because if you take the nuclear issue, for example, uh, they certainly consider the nuclear program as an insurance for the stability of the regime. So no matter how, how much pressure you put on the regime, they will never going to give it up. We've had experts on this show in the past discuss whether or not they are actually getting the capability, uh, whether or not it's really dangerous to Israel. Uh, what is the best way to deal with it? <laughs> But the question I want you to address is what do they actually want? Well, my sense is that right now and that might change in the future, uh, they, they want to uh, position in Iran in, in the so-called threshold position. They want to be in that certain point where all that separates them from becoming a military nuclear state is just a political decision and a relatively short uh, period of time. 
So if uh, Khamenei wakes up tomorrow morning and he wants uh, to have nuclear weapons because, for example, he, he reaches the conclusion that the West or Israel or the United States or I don't know who, who wants to attack uh, Iran, and he asks the IRGC to get nuclear weapons, and then respect to the technology and the capabilities, they're almost there. That's what they want. Some would argue, and I can't rule it out, that perhaps in the future they will will make the decision to break out for, for nuclear weapons. I don't think that they need uh, nuclear weapons right now, but might certainly change. We have to remember that Iran's decision to renew its uh, its nuclear program was uh, was mainly uh, one of the lessons they learned from the Iran-Iraq war uh, when they faced uh, the use of chemical weapons uh, by Iraq. Huge majority of the international community supported Iraq. They could do nothing and they don't want to be in the same situation in the future. That's the main deterrence towards their enemies, whether they're Israelis, Zionists, uh, Americans, Saudis or uh, whoever. Uh, so they want to be there. As an Israeli, of course, that's much, much of concern. Even if they reach uh, this position without breaking out for a weapon, it doesn't provide Israel with much, uh, much time to do anything if they make the, such a decision to, to go there. Mm-hmm. Have you had the opportunity to brief Israeli prime ministers, chiefs of the military about the Iranian file over the years? Certainly not the prime minister. Uh, when I was a part of the, of the so-called military establishment, I, I had some opportunities. I write. I have to say that, uh, especially during the Netanyahu's period, uh, my views were not considered as, uh, uh, as too accepted. Uh, as you probably remember, I, I, I was one of the, the biggest uh, critics of the so-called uh, maximum pressure strategy to, towards Iran. No, not because I, I want, not because I want Iran to, to become nuclear, of course, but I really thought that there was no chance Iran is going to accept those demands. And I actually warned that uh, if this policy is going to be implemented, then it's not going to uh, to make Iran uh, surrender, but it's just going to accelerate its uh, nuclear uh, program, which unfortunately happened. And I also didn't think that it will uh, bring Iran uh, near economic or certainly not political collapse. So my, my positions back then were not received well. I asked that question and you addressed it a bit in your answer because I wanted to ask you if you think in Israel, in the not just the public debate, but more interesting maybe within the security establishment, within the military, within this, the decision-making circles, is there a willingness, do you think, to get a different view on Iran? To hear something that challenges the perception that this is just the biggest threat to our existence and we need to do everything we can and use force if we have to crush this threat? Well, I've been out of the military establishment for the last seven years, but uh, I can tell you that uh, certainly back then in 2015, there were discussions and there were, there were other opinions being heard by the military establishment. Again, I don't remember everyone who said that the JCPOA was the best deal ever signed in the history of humankind. But then the, the, the opinion was that in comparison to other options on the table, it certainly allowed Israel to become better prepared uh, and it gave Israel this delay of uh, 8 to 15 years in Iran's nuclear program. I'm not sure that uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu was uh, that willing to accept other, other views. Uh, I hope that uh, the, the current Prime Minister is more willing to accept those. We shall see. We are recording this conversation in uh, the beginning of the month of May. By the end of 2022, is there a new Iran deal or not? Wow, uh, I have no idea. I, I, was, I have to say that uh, a year ago, I, I thought that there were good chances to go back to the JCPOA. I got a little more pessimistic after I, I saw the, 
uh, the delays uh, mainly from the Iranian side, uh, but then after the the second round of talks uh, under the new administration of Raisi, I was even more optimistic. Uh, mainly, again, because I, I do think that both countries, Iran and the US, have, have very good reasons to go back to the JCPOA. But I have to say that uh, this issue of uh, the listing of the IRGC, you will have to be very, uh, very creative to, to find a solution to this issue, because I, I really find it not very likely that Iran is is going to to give up uh, the IRGC certainly today with this new administration Iran has much influence and and that that has become a major issue and in addition again the war in Ukraine in a way strengthened the more this perception in Iran that don't have to to rush back into the deal perhaps they should wait until uh, and to see what's going to happen after the war so there are many many uncertainties and, and of course as time passes by and uh, we are approaching the midterm elections in the US and perhaps in 2 3 years we'll have another republican a president in the United States, perhaps even Trump, that that of course reduces the the chances for for Iran to make a decision to go back to the deal. Because if if they are going to to go back to the deal and then and the sanctions are going to be removed, and they know that there is a possibility that in two or three years sanctions are going to be reimposed, I'm not sure that they will make a decision to go back there. But it really depends on the decision uh, making in both Washington and, and Tehran. One last question. Can you maybe share something with our listeners that will surprise them about Iranian society and culture today? I'm not sure that it will going to surprise everyone, but I think that uh, one of the interesting things in Iran is is to see a very open discussions of, of many issues, including issues which, especially in the past, considered taboo, even the issue of Israel. Hmm. I remember reading many articles, even in newspapers in Iran and websites in Iran. I'm not talking about articles uh, published in, uh, in Tehran, but in Tehran, saying we, we should not uh, continue our policy of boycotting Israeli athletes, for example. You probably remember this issue of uh, of the Iranian judoka Said Molai, who had to leave to Germany after uh, uh, being uh, banned from playing uh, with, uh, with the Israeli uh, judoka Sagim Oki. And you see very much open discussions of this issue. Should we continue those policies towards Israel? Not in a way that we, we should recognize Israel or normalize our relations with Israel, but, uh, but uh, we should not be uh, holier than the Pope. And, and at a time when uh, the, most of the Arab states are willing to accept Israel and even the Palestinians, some of them at least want to accept Israel, we should not adopt such an anachronistic and the hardline position towards Israel. So you can certainly see that in Iran. It doesn't have much impact on the decision making in Iran, but it's, it's very uh, interesting to see those debates going on in Iran, even over issues like that. Well, to me, that was surprising and very interesting. Eraz Tzim, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you. It was my pleasure. And that's it for today's episode. Thank you very much to our producer, Aaron Ehrlich, and to you listeners. My colleague, Ellison Kaplan-Sommer, will return this weekend with a new episode of Haaretz Weekend. Until our next meeting, Shalom from Tel Aviv, and to those here in Israel, Yom Atzmaut Sameh.